Thank you very much, Dr. Bauer, and thank you all for your <clears throat> invitation to come back here again and your welcome. Uh, my wife and I are on a bit of a road trip right now. I'm getting quite a lot of echo from this. Is that affecting you or is that all right? Can you hear what I'm saying all right at the back? Hmm? It's okay, good, fine, thank you. And uh, it, it's, it's a delight to be back here. I was saying to Dr. Bauer as we walked across the campus and came past that lovely statue of John Wesley that I feel right at home. I guess this is my third or fourth visit here, although I always forget the energy with which you sing because sadly, even in Durham Cathedral, we seldom get a congregation really going for it like you just did. I would like to, I would like to bottle what I just heard and take it back home with me if, if, that, if that were possible. I do not know whether we Anglicans gave you Methodists the desire and delight in singing like that. I suspect that one of the reasons you became Methodists was because you wanted to do that stuff and we, would, we wouldn't let you. But I, we, we would like a little bit, bit of it back, please. Thank you very much. Um, I, I cannot now remember who thought of the strange title which I have for this uh, talk today, Use of Scripture in Contemporary Political Discourse, but when I looked at it a week or two ago as I was getting my thoughts ready for coming here, I thought, well, mm, yes, ideally a talk on that subject ought to be uh, a careful analysis of recent political discourse, East and West, North and South, looking at the different ways in which the Bible is used within it, and I have neither the time nor the expertise in current political discourse to be able to do that kind of analysis, nor I suspect is that really what you think I'm going to be talking about, though perhaps one should. Um, I want to offer some reflections on a sort of bird's eye view of what has been going on with the use of the Bible in a variety of, of settings, and then to suggest some ways in which the narrative of Scripture does in fact play out into political discourse in ways in which, uh, ways which might actually refresh us in the church and the world. And one of the first things to be said about this, and I come and go between the United Kingdom and the United States really quite a bit, um, is just how very different things look from either side of the Atlantic. I recently read Jim Wallace's new book, The Great Awakening, sequel to his um, uh, book, whatever it was called, a few years ago. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's Jet, that, God's Politics. Thank you. I knew somebody here would know it. Um, and uh, I, I find myself in agreement with quite a lot that Jim Wallace says, by no means all, but quite a lot. But again and again, I find myself saying, that is a very American perspective. And even though Wallace travels to the UK and other parts of the world quite frequently, I wanted to say, uh, things do look a little different from where we sit. And of course, the same is true on a wider canvas as well. And I was reminded of the old Cold War joke from the early 1960s. And I've heard more recent versions of this uh, about contemporary politicians, but the original that I remember was the early 1960s with uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy and the then British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan walking into a bar and the barman saying, well, gentlemen, uh, what would you really like today? And Khrushchev at once says, I would really like the imminent immediate destruction of the United States and everything to do with them. And the barman turns to, to uh, Kennedy and says, and what would you really like today? I would like the immediate destruction of the Soviet Union and all their satellites. And he turns to Macmillan and says, and what would you really like? And Macmillan says, I'd like a gin and tonic, but serve these two gentlemen first. <laughs> now, see, 
that the, the, the characteristic British position is to sit in the middle and play this naive, innocent game of saying, well, other people have these big agendas, we're trying to figure out you know, just, just how to get our heads clear in the middle of it all. And so may, may, maybe there is a, an element of that in, in what, I'm, what I'm going to be trying to do in the next 25 minutes or so. Um, where are we at the moment with the use of scripture in political discourse? Were this a seminar with just 20 or 30 of you, it would be fun to go around the room and say, which politicians have you heard quoting scripture over the last 10 or 15 years, and what texts do they use, and how do they use them, either explicitly or implicitly? That would be really interesting, and uh, uh, maybe somebody should set up a website and you could study it and then do a seminar on it. And then equally, which texts of Scripture do you find church leaders going to when they reflect on what is going on in the wider world, politics in the broadest sense? How are they using the great themes of Scripture, particular texts? Where do they naturally gravitate to when they want to get some purchase on uh, a biblical worldview for the wider society and not just for, for, for personal faith? And really, it will be fun to do that, both looking at what politicians say when they say what they really mean, when somebody says, deep down, this is where I'm coming from, and then a rather different exercise when politicians are trying to sell what they really want to do to people out there who they know uh, rather value the Bible. There might be two quite different things, and it would be fun to map that. I'm giving you an agenda here rather than the analysis, which it would really be ideal to have. And likewise, um, there is a difference, perhaps, between what the church should lean on when it is addressing the wider world and the world of politicians, and what the church should be doing in terms of texts which inform its own life and its own uh, life within the wider polis, the wider social, cultural, political sphere. And uh, I'll come back to those agendas towards the end. But I notice that some of the great themes which characterize political discourse and actually have done so, as far as I can see, since time immemorial, and uh, speaking as a Roman historian primarily, I notice that they're there in the Roman Empire, which of course owed nothing either to the world of Judaism or the world of Christianity. The great themes of justice and freedom and peace, which the Romans waved around as though they owned them and insisted that by their empire they were bringing these things to the rest of the world, those happen to be three of the great themes, of course, which we find in Scripture as well. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there is a constant to and fro in Western political discourse that has been informed by the Judeo-Christian tradition between the imperial ideals of justice, freedom, and peace such, such as you get from the Roman Empire onwards, all empires like to say that this is what they're bringing to the world, and the Judeo-Christian uh, emphasis on these same themes, freedom, of course, as in the book of Exodus, justice, as in all over the place, the book of Isaiah, the book of Deuteronomy, etc., and peace, that great lovely biblical ideal of shalom, with the lion lying down with the lamb and with a little child leading them and uh, beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and so on. And so there's been a sort of to and fro in Western discourse between the rhetoric that empires always have and the sustained biblical 
language of justice, freedom, and peace. And I suspect that actually most of us live in a rather confused world where we hear these noises and we don't always anchor them and say, just what do you mean? What sort of justice is it? What sort of freedom? What sort of peace? How do you get there? Are you making the end justify the means? And so on. And in particular, the language of liberation theology, uh, which has spilt over into political discourse in all sorts of ways over the last generation or two, has drawn, of course, very heavily on the Exodus tradition. You will know that famously Martin Luther King, in his great dream speech, uh, was evoking the idea of Moses leading the Israelites out of their slavery and off to their promised land. And uh, that picked up the energy from a lot of liberation theology which was around at the time and which couldn't help but burst the bonds of the church's private discourse and have a major impact both on your country, on countries in Latin America, and variously around the world. Not least, of course, some of the African countries as they emerged from colonialism, and not least in particular, South Africa, as uh, astonishingly, for those of us who remember what was going on in South Africa in the 1970s and so on, South Africa managed to have a fairly peaceful transition into full democracy and freedom and majority rule, which many people had thought was completely impossible. That was partly attained by Christians working at all levels in society to pray with governments, to preach to governments, and to say, this is one of the great themes of the sacred text, and we are not going to rest until we see it put in place. So that's one of the major things that we have seen over the last generation is a re-emphasis on exodus and the notion of freedom for slaves which comes through it and uh, the free Methodist tradition obviously which is one part of where mm, some of you I think come from obviously has that deeply in, 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 ingrained in its DNA as well. Alongside that, we have seen in some parts of the church and spilt over into some parts of political life the agenda which you find in Luke 4 in Jesus' sermon in Nazareth, the so-called Nazareth Manifesto, where Jesus announces an agenda which looks rather like a summary of some bits of Isaiah and other Old Testament books going way back to passages in the Pentateuch, including the great passages about the Jubilee. God is going to bring about a time when slaves will be free, when all possessions will be restored to their original owners, when everything will be set right, when prisoners will be comforted and the blind will see, and all of that. And sometimes the church has reminded political leaders of that. Sometimes political leaders have reminded the church that that's what they ought actually to be preaching and proclaiming. But that has come and gone in political discourse. And in my country, it tends to be politicians on the so-called left who have emphasized this liberationist agenda of Jesus. Here's a footnote, but an important one if you're trying to struggle with these issues. Over the last generation, in America, characteristically, in, in the United States, I should say, characteristically, when people have said that we must take our Christian faith into public and political life, they have tended to be people on the center and far right. In England, when people have said we must take our faith into public life, it's tended to be people on the far left. 
Now, that produces all kinds of odd crossovers and, indeed, misunderstandings. So that in America, people who say, no, no, please keep, keep Christianity out of public life have tended to be on the liberal left. And in England, if I, for instance, stand up and make a speech somewhere saying we must bring our faith into public life, it tends to be people on the right in the Conservative Party and so on who say, no, no, faith and politics don't mix. Now, the history of those two ways of doing it is very interesting, but not a topic for today. I merely note it as an important thing if we're trying to understand who we all are and where we're all coming from. Because in the middle, with all these texts and themes, there has been quite a considerable emphasis in some quarters, I suspect in the left in America and certainly in the right in England, on the great split between religion and politics and people quoting Jesus saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, as though that was a way of saying Caesar has that bit over there, God has that bit over there, and never the twain shall meet. I and others have argued that that is a radical misunderstanding of what Jesus was actually meaning. But that's something which again and again we hear. I made a speech in the House of Lords this time last year or so on the provision of chaplaincy in public further education, that is education of, of people between more or less the ages of 16 and 20, urging that we should provide chaplaincies officially and paid for out of the public purse for people in colleges like that. And among the arguments that we use against, one of the standard ones was, uh, oh no, you can't do that because we actually have to have a complete church-state split and people want to get the rumor of God off the political sphere. We do the Caesar stuff, you Christians do the God bit, and please don't try and muddle them up. And people sometimes quote Jesus' words in John, my kingdom is not of this world, as implying, of course, that there is a different kingdom somewhere else entirely, failing to realize that the Greek of that passage does not say of this world, but from this world. The point Jesus is making is that his kingdom comes from somewhere else, but it is emphatically for this world. It is not about taking us away from this world. Nice to have some vocal support. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I, again, this is something that maybe you Methodists picked up without us Anglicans noticing, and it's nice to get a little bit, little bit of it back. But then in particular, the use of Romans 13 has been hugely tricky over the last generation or two. Again and again, under apartheid in South Africa, the protesters against apartheid were told uh, in Romans 13, it says the powers that be are ordained by God. We are the powers that be. Therefore, God wants us to do and be what we have to do and be. And you sit down, shut up, and don't cause a fuss and do as you're told. And there's actually now quite uh, often an angry reaction against that reading of Romans 13 by people trying to say either that Paul didn't write Romans 13, 1 to 7, or that he certainly couldn't possibly have really meant what he seems to be saying, and so on. And that's, that's a matter which I may come back to tomorrow, um, depending on how time goes. Equally, in political discourse at the moment, uh, I have seen on both sides of the Atlantic um, a resurgence of the language of apocalyptic, of the battle between good and evil. 
I wrote a little book about this not very long ago, Evil and the Justice of God, which some of you may know. And that came out of my frustration post 9-11 that, okay, there was something very major and problematic and difficult which had to be dealt with. But the way of dealing with that, it seemed to me, just to put my cards clearly on the table, as if you couldn't have guessed, that saying, oh, there are evil people out there, therefore we good people simply have to go and drop bombs on them, was not actually, which is something on both sides of the Atlantic was basically being said, that was neither a mature nor a wise nor a productive thing to do. You know, I am on public record as saying all of that, and I, I stick by that. But um, I, I, apparently there is some, uh, some group going around with T-shirts and bumper stickers now saying, who would Jesus bomb, which is quite an important question to ask. Um, now, the question of the, the, this question is, is inevitably dovetailed with one of the places where uh, the use of scripture in contemporary political discourse really does come home to roost, which is in relation to the Middle East. And it's fascinating, again historically, in a way for which there is no time for the footnotes this morning, to see how the Derbyite dispensationalism of the mid-19th century, which started off as a tiny little group um, among some Plymouth brethren who were, in the nature of the case, dispossessed, they were not powerful, they didn't have a voice, and they generated this dispensationalist scheme, which included the notion of the return of the Jews to the, to the land of Israel and so on. That rhetoric from the mid-19th century, that reading of scripture from the mid-19th century, suddenly has become enormously powerful, I say suddenly, over the last 40 years or so, in ways which its earliest proponents could never have imagined. This isn't, again, the time for a critique of that. I merely observe that that particular reading of Daniel, of Ezekiel, of bits of Revelation, and so on, has had an enormous impact, dovetailing, interestingly, with the, uh, the Jewish rereading of Scripture in contemporary political discourse. When I was teaching in Montreal 25 years ago, I remember coming upon uh, a book in a bookstore, and I saw the title before I saw the name of the author, and it was The Bible in My Life, and I thought, well, that looks an interesting book. I wonder what it's doing in a public secular bookstore like this, and then I picked it up and looked at it, and the author was Moshe Dayan, who was one of the Israeli generals, who was, of course, looking at the Bible, to, uh, his Bible, the Jewish Bible, to try to discern a political agenda for which wars ought to be fought, which bit of territory ought to be claimed, and how to establish um, the state of Israel then in the, in the 70s and in the 80s. And uh, we, uh, I think, do well to observe these bits of discourse going on and not to imagine that we are not involved in them because actually by implication we are all involved in them and if we haven't thought them through that merely means we're going to be involved in them in an unhelpful and unthought out way. And at the same time as just putting down these tiny little markers, and there are dozens of others one could say, I want to put down a couple of markers about things which do not normally show up in political discourse. One is the book of Genesis. The only way the book of Genesis seems to appear in political discourse is in the creation-evolution debate, which it seems to me is a singularly unhelpful way for Genesis to impact on public life. Um, 
I, well, there's all, all sorts of things I could say about that, but there's the irony particularly that sometimes, certainly in my country, I wouldn't venture at the moment to comment on yours, those who seem most concerned about what they call creationism seem with the next breath to be least concerned about creation in terms of ecology and valuing the world as God's good world. <laughs> Astonishing. This is, this is like telling jokes in a foreign language and not understanding why people laugh, you know. Um, <clears throat> and, and you know I, I'm out of here on Friday morning, so I'm just going to say what I'm going to say, and if you applaud or if you hate it, then uh, I'll be gone fairly soon. Um, and that goes, by the way, with the irony that often those who are most stridently anti-Darwinian in their uh, account of how things began are most strongly implicitly social Darwinian in terms of the way they look at money and power but that too is another whole um, another whole issue so all this now all this goes on at a time uh, this, this is this is one of the theme tunes that I'm constantly trying to sing as I go around the place all this comes at a time when evangelicals in the broadest sense and that's a very slippery word I know on both sides of the Atlantic when evangelicals are rediscovering the Gospels now that's an odd thing to say because evangelicals are Bible Christians yeah, we've always read the Gospels, but I don't think we have usually, and in fact, I don't think the whole Western Christian tradition, Catholic or Protestant, high or low, whatever, has really asked in any depth, what are the Gospels there for? Why have we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not just, like the Gospel of Thomas, a set of discreet sayings of Jesus and deeds of Jesus, just as a sort of miscellaneous list? Because face it, many Christians in many traditions over many generations have basically seen the Gospel as what you get out of Paul, and then the Gospels as simply helpful collections of things that Jesus said and did to back up the Gospel which you get out of Paul. And though I often disagree with my good friend and sparring partner, Dom Crossan, I think he's right in this regard, that I remember him saying, if you read Paul first, you'll get Jesus wrong, and if you read Jesus first, you'll read Paul differently. And I think he's probably right about that. Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not simply about a collection of things that Jesus did and said, which then suddenly segues into this very unfortunate, however salvific, event of his death and resurrection. They are much richer than that. And I'm sure your New Testament professors and others will encourage you to read them as the rich things they are. They are the story of how the saving purpose of the one creator God reached its climax in the deeds, the words, and in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But they are the documents which tell us that the saving purposes of this one God are not to save people away from the world, but in order that God's kingdom might come on earth as in heaven. That is the... But part of the difficulty is reading the Gospels in a fragmented way, which allows you to escape that emphasis and makes it very strange to many people. And then the danger, which I think Jim Wallace and his friends and this new movement of the, the, the Micah challenge on the one hand, and they're calling themselves red-letter Christians, taking the words of Jesus seriously, excellent, I'm all for that. But I'm not sure they totally escape this danger, which is endemic in Western Christianity. 
that the Gospels then themselves fall apart into the kingdom work of Jesus on the one hand and his death and resurrection on the other, as though these are two quite different things. And I've spent quite a bit of my professional life trying to hold together what should never have been split apart, and there are worldview reasons and philosophical and cultural reasons why we have split them apart. But if we are to use the Gospels seriously and creatively in contemporary worldwide discourse, whether it's about politics, whether it's about ecology, whether it's about culture, we must learn to see them as a whole story because the kingdom does not come simply through Jesus having meals with outcasts and healing lepers and so on, as though the death and resurrection were quite incidental, nor simply through him dying on the cross and rising again, as though the healings and the feastings and the teachings were, in a sense, quite incidental. You know, why did all that stuff happen if all he had to do was die on a cross? Couldn't he just have done that and that would have been enough? And as soon as you find yourself thinking like that, you say, these books are bigger than we had realized, and it's time we took them a bit more seriously. And as I say, it's great then that the evangelical tradition is rediscovering the Gospels. My plea would be that it will rediscover them in such a way that they show up as what they really are. The climax of the Old Testament story, seeing the Old Testament as the story of how God calls to himself a people so that they will be the people who will be the advance model for what the world will look like when God has sorted it out. The message of the kingdom comes down to this. I often use this with young people in my diocese and come in and say, what would it look like if God was running this show? What would it look like if God was in charge here? Always worth asking that question and it kind of rocks people back on their heels and that is actually the question of the kingdom. What will the kingdom of God look like? It'll look like, what would it look like if God was running this place? And then you find that that question bounces back and says, which God are we talking about anyway? And then the gospels say, this is the God we're talking about. And what it looks like when this God is running the show is that it's like seeds being planted, which some grow and some don't, and some grow secretly, and a small seed which turns into a great shrub. It'll look like a scapegrace young son being welcomed back lavishly with his older brother sulking in the background, and so on and so on. This, that's why Jesus told the parables, because the answer to the question, what will it look like when God is running this show, is not obvious, and it goes on being not obvious to us if we're not careful. But in the middle of all of this, as the later New Testament writers, the post-Jesus writers, Paul and, and the others, uh, realize and indeed celebrate, what happens through all of this is that despite appearances, despite the fact that it seems as though Herod and Pilate and the rest of the gang are still running the show, they hail the fact that Jesus is in fact already sovereign over the world. We were singing about it just now, and I'd, you know, one of the odd things about being in sort of high middle age is to read words that you've sung a thousand times and realize, my goodness, we've been singing political theology all this time. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. That's straight out of Psalm 2, which was chosen as our opening invocatory reading. The idea that all, you know, this is 
is the complete antithesis, I'm afraid, of all relativism, of all you do this and we'll do that kind of theology. This is a way of saying that Jesus of Nazareth, with his death, resurrection, and ascension, is already hailed and crowned as Lord of the world. And to those who say it doesn't look like that, and remind us of the Crusades and the Inquisition, that's the usual litany, and various other wicked things the church has done, we say, of course, the church has been part of the problem as well as being the bearer of the solution. Of course, we should never have imagined anything other than that. But it is Jesus who is the Lord of the world, not some fantasy who is the projection of our own either insecurities or ambitions or whatever else. And it is the Jesus of the whole gospel story who is the Lord of the world. What does this look like when we try to say, how do we put this narrative into political discourse today because if we simply leave it as a private game that we and we play in the church we are falsifying it you can't do that with it if you say jesus is lord of all but by the way this is a truth within closed doors you're saying jesus isn't really lord of all you know well i was brought up with the old pietist slogan which i'm sure is familiar to you uh, wesleyans methodists if he is not lord of all he is not lord at all which was always said to me in terms of my personal life, and goodness knows I still need it, that every different compartment of my life must have Jesus as its Lord. Yeah. What about every different compartment of our public life? If he is not Lord at all, of all he is not Lord at all. So where does this come down to? If, if you know the, the literature on this subject, you'll see that I'm tracking quite closely at one or two points with the work of Professor Oliver O'Donovan, formerly of Oxford, now of Edinburgh, who has written at the level of quite serious moral and ethical discourse about this. And I think he's right on track with what I see coming out of all sorts of bits of the New Testament. The church's job in the present is so to tell and live this story as to announce to the powers that Jesus is Lord and that they are not. The way I often do this is by a quick run through Ephesians. Ephesians 1.10, God's plan in Christ is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in him. Ephesians 2.10, we are chosen and created in Christ for and rescued in Christ for those good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's not just that we should behave ourselves. It's not just so now you should uh, embrace a Christian ethic in your own personal life. Those good works in Paul are often the good works which are going out into the community to do things which make a difference in the real world. And then Ephesians 3.10, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That is a massive agenda which the church in this generation must re-embrace. This is where Scripture will project us out into the discourses of power in our world. Because the church's analysis of what the principalities and powers, the, the forces that rule the world, are, ought to go something like this. There will come a time when the Creator God will put this world right once and for all. We British have a phrase, put the world to rights. I have been told many times that Americans don't say it like this. We, God is going to fix it. God is going to put it right, make it right once and for all. Now, and the task of the rulers of the world in the present day is in a measure to anticipate that by acts of judgment and mercy in the present. That is the task of the rulers. 
And it is the church's job to remind the rulers of the world that that is their task. You see this acted out fascinatingly in the book of Acts. I recently wrote little uh, Acts for Everyone, which is part of my Everyone series. I was fascinated by working through, looking at the way in which Paul stands up to the authorities in Philippi, in Corinth, in Ephesus, where he wants to go into the theater and speak to the people, and then particularly in those, those various hearings through the 20s of Acts, when he's bounced around from one governor and one court to another. He is constantly not just explaining his own innocence, but reminding the rulers of what their own job is. I think Luke has in mind there's something of a model going on here. The church must not be afraid of the powers that be, but must say, as indeed Jesus himself did, this is your job. You're supposed to be running this show. You're actually getting it wrong in the following ways. Now, please, will you do it right? And you see, this is a way through, my friends, this is a way through. We tend in political discourse, and we imitate this in the church, to oscillate between tyranny on the one side and chaos on the other. And we in the West tend to say that our great democratic traditions are the proper way through in the middle. Well, that may be, though now with postmodernity, our great democratic traditions do not look quite as bright and shiny as once they did, and it is not entirely clear, and I'm speaking of the Western world as a whole, it's not entirely clear that they are not introducing new types of chaos and new types of tyranny without actually acknowledging that. We in the church have to live and model and pray and prophesy the way which comes straight out of the Gospels, seen as that whole story of this is how the Creator God is fixing the world, so that we can get the Bible back into political discourse, not as a few verses here and a few verses there, but as a wonderful celebratory story of the goodness and restorative justice of the one true God, made known in, dramatically enacted in Jesus Christ, and at work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to say, in the 18th century in Britain, it was John Wesley and those who were working with him who did what the then Anglican church seemed completely incapable of doing and produced a revival which was both a spiritual revival and a social revival. And at this point, I'm right on track with Jim Wallace that what we need today is another one of those. Thank you very much. Thank you.